Welcome to Under the Skin with me, Russell Brand. This week we're talking to Loki, the uh, prize-winning author. He won the Orwell Prize. Real name Darren McGarvey in his book Poverty Safari. He explored attitudes to the working class. His activism around um, the tragedy of Grenfell's garnered a lot of attention and his personal insights into working class life have been illuminating and exciting and have helped to alter attitudes and infuse activism with a kind of, I don't know, a new authenticity. We talk a lot about education, addiction, grassroots politics, social mobility. It's a fascinating episode of the podcast which took place uh, last year we recorded it in Scotland and I think it was obviously this Grenfell tragedy had not long happened and I feel that we talked a lot about it both obviously practically and but also as an emblem of warped social attitudes and a kind of physicalization of the tacit condemnation and sacrifice of the poor um yeah hope you enjoyed it hope you enjoy this episode if you want to come and see me live you can see me in northampton at the beginning of december look at russellbrand.com for details under the skin Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route. Yes, that, that, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Darren, should we start off? Uh, thanks for coming on Under the Skin, mate. Pleasure. Can we talk a bit about Poverty Safari? What compelled you to write the book and what you were hoping to convey? Well, I had always been writing about social issues to do with poverty, partly because it was the only thing I really knew, because that's how I grew up. So, um, around about 2014, there was a lot of social media activism going on. Obviously, like Facebook and all that had really taken off. And... Uh, I was publishing like blogs about class and uh, whether it was on Facebook or like WordPress or accessing kind of pro-independence new media that was emerging like sites like Bella Caledonia for example or National Collective and uh, and I was just immediately struck by the response this stuff was getting and I'm aware sometimes people will respond because it's kind of confirming their beliefs uh, but at the same time, I also started finding an audience that were really interested in class as something to talk about because it was something that was articulating their experience. And so once I got a sense of that, I started learning how to use social media to my advantage. And uh, and over time, people say, you know, you should write a book. And my first thought was people like me don't write books. That's the first line in the book. Um, so it took a while for me to kind of even come to terms with the idea that I could do something on that scale, and uh, and then and then I did I did decide I would would like to try it at least. I thought, why the fuck not? Whatever. And then uh, I had a meeting with a publisher. They seemed up for it. They they kind of green lit it, and then I never heard from them again. Um, took a few months to sort of re- regather my confidence. And then, uh, and then I, I got another meet with another publisher in Edinburgh, Lewis Press, small independent but very reputable publisher, and they just got the idea straight away, and they greenlit it. They told me about different grants I could go for, funding I could go for, and I thought, no, I don't want to go down that route because I don't want to. I've spent a long time in my life trying to explain to people who hold the keys for various access to different things about what it is I'm trying to do, and they're just being this miscommunication as a result of the kind of the 
the ravine, as it's I hear people call it, you know, an activist up here, Jonathan Shaffy, he uses this phrase, the ravine, that really stuck with me. I see it as a ravine of, of between class experiences, where even when you're trying to communicate something quite basic, something gets lost in translation. So I don't know what to go down the funding route, I don't know what I have to justify myself, so I just bet all the marbles on myself, did a crowdfund, and uh, raised £12,000 which provided my family and I with a bit of security while I set about the task of raising a baby with my partner, working five part-time jobs and uh, trying to somehow write a book that I didn't have a chapter plan or a structure for. And uh, well, that... Your only experience up to then have been like writing blogs, which while challenging, it's very sort of short form and immediate, doesn't place the kind of demands that a sort of 65,000 word book yeah. would place on you. Yeah, exactly. And because I, the, my only uh, understanding of how it structures something comes from music. So um, in terms of like mapping that structure onto book, book form, it does work to an extent. But what I didn't realise was that every time I changed the sequence of the book, I had to read it again or speed read it at least to see how it flows. Whereas if I change an album sequence, like say I put track five to track eight and I swap the first track and the last track, and then I listen to the album in 40 minutes and I can hear it cohesively in 40 minutes but this the volume of words was something that I didn't actually like assume beforehand and then it was it seemed a bit stupid really but the amount of times I had to reread things and the volume of it so the book ended up having quite an interesting structure as a result of that although I don't think I would ever attempt a book again without having a very ordered chapter plan going into it why just because I, I, there were times when I really got lost in it. Obviously, like you know what it's like when you've got a young kid at home. So there are various demands on your time, on your energy, and uh, just trying to find the time to apply yourself to writing. I mean, a lot of the book was written in the back of taxis, on trains and buses. What, on a phone? Yeah, just like any time, any, any chance that I could get to write or I felt inspired, I would get a few hundred words down or some notes. And then now and again, I would get maybe a couple of days in a hotel or someone would let me go and stay in a house that they had, which was quiet. And then I would vomit up larger volumes of words the minute that it was quiet. But I think actually all of that experience, as difficult as it was, especially for my family, um, as difficult as it was, then I got a lot of support, you know, friends, family, mucking in, helping out, taking the baby, uh, providing resources, help, advice. But at the same time, it's very lonely because I don't know anyone who's written a book. I don't know anyone who has uh, has been on this journey that I'm on. You know, silly things like getting a lot of emails all the time and it seems like a pretentious thing to stress about. But actually when it's happening to you and you can't manage it all, it is quite stressful. So it's quite lonely because... In my social circle, no one really experiences that stuff. They're all having real problems. And I just felt like I can't go on about this, although I'm pretty sure I did go on about it a lot. But the the experience in itself definitely prepared me for um, if I do something again in the future, I'll be a wee bit more organised before I go into it. Darren, now you've written the book and it's been well received, you can re reflect with a, a little hindsight on what you wanted to communicate in Poverty Safari and whether the reaction to the book gives you hope that you have communicated it. Talk a bit about that, mate. 
Well, the biggest surprise for me, first of all, was how well received it's been. Um, I'm used to writing for a Scottish audience, and when you know what it's like, man, like in, in your own community, you've got previous with everybody, mm. you know, so people have, the, they, they form your opi- their opinions of you based on a number of different things and vice versa. So I was kind of, in my head, I was just thinking, this book's going out to the people who already read my work. So I was kind of preparing for a sort of 50-50 reaction, almost kind of in conflict mode, which is what I sort of go into instinctively. But when I went down to London and did the start of the week show, then what I realised was like I was getting a kind of second chance to make a first impression, to bring a lot of the lessons that I've learned through a lot of the scrapes that I've got into and discussions and arguments and debates mm. about different things in Scotland and get a real clean connection with a potential audience who does don't, don't know who I am, have no expectation. So, and oh, sorry, carry on. Forgive me. You found you, you sort of like your online voice started like through blogging and talking about Scottish independence. Yeah. But n- now that you're entering sort of more international level of uh, notoriety, you're talking more about class. But I'm assuming that when you were talking about independence, class was a big component. Can you talk to me about that? Yeah, I mean, I, that's how I came, came into a position of conflict with sections of the Yes movement because, you know, like all movements, there's a disagreement in certain pockets about what the priorities are and what posture we should assume generally. So it was the sort of, for me and a lot of other people on the kind of left and the radical left, we we, we didn't see, we didn't really buy into the idea that independence first and then we'll talk about all this stuff later. We thought, now hang on, why go to all this trouble of having independence if we've not got a really certain idea of what we want to do in relation to taxation, social housing, welfare, drug policy, education. Like, let's really get into the detail about this stuff because that might be the thing that mobilises more people in the disenfranchised communities who are, you know, usually apathetic towards politics and for good reason. So I would be bringing up class, usually in relation to art, because I was creating music around uh, the themes that I thought were sort of emerging out of the independence debate and uh, sometimes I would come into conflict when I would go and perform at arts events that were like felt very sort of studenty and middle class and there's a certain expectation about what's appropriate. You'll know this from your experience of a, as a performer, although because you're more established now people will tend to come to wherever you are on issues but when you're just meeting people for the first time and you're using a vernacular and a lexicon and and and, and things that might be perceived as vulgar or aggressive then uh, you just feel resistance and for me that raised interesting questions because one of my primary interests and in independence was that the regionalization of culture in Britain means that a lot of great writers and artists from you know different places in the UK who, who who don't have friends in the sort of London bubble, they just get ignored or they're seen as kind of like firebrands or they get bracketed in a certain way. And so I thought independence is perhaps selfishly, I thought independence is a way for us to create our own culture and our own, uh, and configure it in a way that makes sense to us. Um, but then uh, there was a lot of self-interest involved as well. In hindsight, you know, it was this idea of being a bigger fish in a smaller pond. You know, I, I've been rapping for 15 years 
and I'm very, I'm very uh, competent at it. I'm very passionate about it. Um, but even in Scotland, the idea of rapping with my own accent is like a joke for a lot of people. And uh, and that's even worse when you go down south, you know, although all the grime rappers and all the MCs down there is a very proud history of UK hip hop. So it's just like all of those reasons. But then when I got into the discussions with people who were running these arts events and I was wanting to talk about class or I had class based disputes with them, then they were like, we'll talk about this later. We'll talk about this after. And they would try and placate me in various ways, obviously underestimating how passionate I was about it so that became a sort of a, a, a divergence point for me and a lot of other people with the Yes Movement that still remains to, to this day I would say. What is the nature of this dispute? What is the nature of this disparity between what I'm picking up you're describing as a more educated or, or to use a, a classical or conventional word or more uh, the more bourgeois aspect of the left and the uh, working class contingency. Yeah, and then also an, it, this dispute? also right. a nationalist fold at the centre of it all as well. So the, it's it's not, I, I wouldn't characterise it as a dispute, although it does manifest as uh, confrontation and acrimony. I would characterise it as um, things getting lost in translation. So we currently think about culture as a sort of continuum where people uh, near the bottom are, are waiting to sort of graduate to become legitimate by virtue of their willingness to either conceal or renounce those traits which indicate who they actually are. Mm, yes. Whereas I see working class culture as a parallel culture mm. and, and in it there are many contradictions, eccentricities, lessons, there's a lot of wisdom uh, there are things that are very distinct. Uh, I mean, I've been socially mobile enough in, in my life that I've mixed a lot across the ravine. So over the years, I've built up an understanding of some of these fault lines. And the, 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 the breakdown in communication often can come from simply uh, a difference in a sense of urgency or priority mm. or the words that someone uses. So what, what you might see is what you might uh, see as passion, someone sees as aggression or pushiness, mm, mm. or what you might see as polite, someone thinks is patronising. Yeah. And it's it's the combination of all of these little instances where people come away from an attempt to mingle across the ravine that, that just becomes natural to sort of recoil back to where it's comfortable, where people agree, whereas I like to be on the line. I'm more comfortable in the middle. I come from a working class background. I'm passionate about it. But even back then in my youth, there would be people trying to police how I spoke, the words that I use, the things that I was interested in, a very rigid idea about what a young man should be. And I mm. resented that and challenged that. But then at the same time, on the other side, then even just the things that I want to talk about, the way that I want to frame it, it's changing now because I've kind of been co-signed by a few legitimate people. Now it's yeah. a bit like, oh, this way, Mr. McGarvey. But beforehand, it was very, it was very much a struggle. I had to kind of manipulate my way into middle class spheres, like stop wearing a hoodie, start wearing a blazer, wear a pair of glasses instead of a baseball cap, and uh, and learn to talk like middle class people. Where I learned that for them, that's a sort of form of currency, not necessarily being clever, but sounding clever, and. And the minute that I sort of picked up on that, that's when I became more socially mobile than perhaps 
my education would have allowed me to be. You make some good points there. One of the things I recently learned about the way that hegemony is constructed is with the imposition of a narrative and of a language within it. And the way I, I learned it when I'm doing this course at university, they said that the way that the Western world or so-called secular world deals with Islam or Middle Eastern countries is with the assumption that there's a, a narrative that Islam has to go through that will conform to what a post uh like like that that, 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 that Christian history has been through like yeah. i.e. Protestantism and Catholicism and secularization when as you just when you were describing working class culture then said it's a parallel narrative yeah. that there is there is a separate Islamic narrative there's a separate working class narrative and you don't have these things needn't necessarily conflate and certainly uh, what you would call I suppose secondary or sub narratives it can't be subsumed into the inverted commas dominant narrative yeah. so like yeah I, I like that mate what you said that you have to even on the level of like a, the, the way that you accessorise pop on a pair of specs instead of a baseball cap to be more yeah sort of identifiable but then, but then when you do that you come into conflict with where you're actually come from you turn up at a hip-hop gig in a blazer and people are like where's your hoodie who do you think you are yeah. you know and so like actually as much as much as is is that that has been difficult at times at the same time i've kind of like i've, I've tried to stay true to what i want, want to do and really with the book what i was trying to do was engage multiple uh people from multiple backgrounds at the same time so the book is structured in a way that appeals to people who maybe don't read so well. It's Each of the chapters are independent of one another. You could read the book backwards and you'd still get a lot out of it. There are short chapters, so people will feel that they're making progress. Then they'll be less likely to throw in the towel when they lose concentration. But obviously as well, um, I, I'm true to the way that I think and write, which means I use words that maybe wouldn't have been so natural to me growing up in Pollock and Glasgow where people are very sort of like, young men are very touchy if a boy uses the word beautiful to describe someone's hair. And and so the book's true to me in that sense. But actually, when I when I look at how, when I look at the, the sort of, the breadth of response to it, not in terms of like, how many people have read it, but even if you were to take like a subsection of people, the, the political diversity within it, the social diversity within it, it's quite striking. And something that I would never imagine I was capable of. But what I realise in hindsight is that all of that experience I've got of talking to lots of different people and pushing beyond my comfort zone to go to a place I wouldn't normally go to or put myself in a position of discomfort uh, has actually is actually what shaped me as a writer and that's what my voice is. So as, as much as I can get drawn into conflict, I can be lippy, I can be egotistical, I can be a right pain in the arse to be quite frank. My... My, my, the position I'm always trying to return to is one of being able to articulate what a reconciliation might look like over a fault line. Understanding both points of view simultaneously without necessarily feeling the need to concede anything. Being able to respectfully hear someone's argument and get where they're coming from and understand the kind of the interior of a disagreeable position as opposed to just you know the behaviour or the language or whatever the dog whistle is for that particular viewpoint. And actually, in, in this kind of, in this age, just now in the social media age, what, social media is such a profound variable that we've all really underestimated the impact that it's going to have. 
mean, this Cambridge Analytica stuff is just the beginning of us trying to get a collective mind around it. Um, so this is a time where as much as we do need to fight for things, we need to refine the way we fight for things. And we also need people to emerge who are able to kind of move in behind and stitch up the wounds wherever they can be stitched up. And and uh, and that's that's something that comes natural to me the older I get. Maybe because I'm going a bit soft because I've got kids. Or maybe that was always my natural position and it just took me that long to find it. The structure of myth would suggest it's perfectly natural for us, for life to feel somewhat episodic for things that seem so uh, important when you're a young man to recede or soften. When you were growing up in Pollock, mate, and like obviously sort of now that you're not as immersed in that world, just, you know, yeah. due to, as you said, social mobility, did you feel uh, like you fitted in? Uh, no, absolutely not. Um, although my attempt to fit in meant that I understood many different ways of looking at it and had a, a broad range of interests. So I played football, I played rugby, I was interested in martial arts for a while, I hung about on the street now and again, I was into music, drama, um, as well as that, uh, I, I uh, obviously got into, got into hip-hop in my, in my teens, which is where I felt most at home. Um, I felt most comfortable at home, obviously after my mum left. My dad was very supportive of me being creative. I would rush to get home, and just go upstairs and work on whatever I was working on. And my dad, being a creative sort himself, he understood that impulse. That was one area where he really got me. And that's been something fundamental that stayed with me. Um, that's where you connected to your dad, was it, through creativity? Yeah, yeah. That That's how he connected to me. He, he I mean, he raised three of us by himself. And, 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 and he didn't have an easy time as a kid either. I mean, the problems that happened in my childhood are echoed generationally which is unsurprising. But he was very, very strong in saying, don't you ever feel like you have to take a job you don't want to do? If you want to go and work, fine. But don't listen to the careers advisors that are telling you to go and train to be a plumber. Don't listen to anyone that doesn't like your music or is making fun of your tapes or whatever. Just do whatever you want to do. And he provided facilities at home for me to do these things. And, uh, and 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 actually, it was when, funnily enough, it was when I was on my own working on things. That's when I felt most comfortable. That's when I became distracted from a lot of the other stuff that was going on, uh, uh, whether it was internal stuff or stuff in the external world, like you know the constant threat of violence in your community, which is even more frightening when you you're hyper vigilant as a result of your own upbringing. It's just this constant anxiety all the time. And, and my music and the things I was able to express in it, how I could lose myself in it, then that 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 gave me an opportunity where a lot of young people from my community who don't know what they're passionate about or they've got no one pushing them to find what they're passionate about, that's what gave me uh, an immense level of privilege, despite obviously like you might not consider someone like me to be privileged where I come from. Um, so I, I, I've never really felt comfortable uh, since I had kids and I feel very settled in my relationship and my family are back involved in my life since I started on the journey of recovery 
then I feel comfortable with my friends and family. For a long time, I was away from them in an ivory tower, creating a lot of myths about why I was on my own, why my life is a mess. Um, and actually, all that stuff sort of sorted itself out gradually over time. And and actually, I'm, I'm usually in a rush to get home, you know. Mm. I want to get home. I want to get home to my partner. I want to get home and see my wee boy. Now I've got a wee girl. Sometimes I can't be bothered with things. I'm a human being. But there's no instinct in me that's like, oh, I wonder what it would be like to do a runner. <laughs> you mm. know, I wonder what it would be like to do a runner. I wonder what it would be like to just go and stay out for a few days. And, uh, you know, my sense of belonging is a lot clearer now. This idea of trying to communicate experiences across ravines, I think it's important. I was like, like I tell you, I think it's good on this. David Foster Wallace, he talks about when he's teaching African American students how he says to them like that you've got to learn how to speak what is called standard written English, but it might as well be standard white English because that's the language that it is. And even if you think it's unfair that you'll be marked down because you're writing primarily in a dialect without even yeah. knowing that you're writing in a dialect, you're going to have to learn standard right English in order to make the arguments that that's unfair yeah. so this idea of communicating across a ravine whether it's in, in American communities it seems to be that the corollary between race and class seems to be kind of a um, sort of a total one there mm. you know it's very, like when you like read a lot about successful African American artists dealing with white media executives and they say oh we have to translate everything we're saying I as a white person feel like oh god is it that deeper dispute is the division that deep and I feel somewhat crestfallen mm. uh, 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 that prospect but when you describe it in terms of class it's clearer to me because I suppose it's more uh, more identifiable I can recognize it from my own experience mm. um so I suppose what we have to find is some it is the universal perhaps this is a, a job of art and social structuring that's where, where those two things align that if we continue to reiterate our distinctions from one another, then, as you say, what is going to be the possibility for there to be, um, you know, healing yeah. subsequently? Yeah. So, like, how are you happy with the way that, that is with your, you know, with your music and also with this book, the, the way that you're communicating this? And do you feel positive about the sort of feedback you're getting around it? Yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't ready for how generous people have been. As I say, like when you're in a kind of when you're sometimes in entrenched debates about circular uh, issues, then then you can become disheartened. But actually, like I say, that clean connection. Um, and just to be honest, man, like I mean, I might come. I don't know how I come across, but I've been told sometimes I can be quite arrogant sounding or whatever, right? Which would 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 suggest I'm supremely confident in my own ability, but I'm not really. So. When I get that confirmation that something I've done is valuable to people, whether they agree with it or not, actually that kind of quiets my ego. So it has a sort of reverse effect that you would that you would think mm. that, that actually any success that's coming has has kind of stilled a lot of that instinct to go. I told you so. And sometimes I'll still get a bit kind of I'll feel a bit kind of like um, satisfied, for example, about. You know, people who thought that you couldn't do it or people who are criticised and I think, ha, 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 get it up you. I think that's natural though, but it's not like my default setting. I'm not motivated to prove myself. And and the more that people... I mean, I love engaging with the criticism of the book because 
as much as it can be excruciating reading someone really getting into detail about why you're wrong and sometimes obviously the implication of that might be quite personal as well then at the same time I find that's where my growth happens not just the ability to engage with criticism but but and what the criticism means but that process of putting yourself through it there's something about a relationship between growth and discomfort that uh, it's counterintuitive to throw yourself into it but you know some of the criticism that I've received about things that I've said things that I've written opinions that I've expressed as much as it was difficult at the time and I might not have reacted uh, with a great deal of dignity at the time I always try to go away and think about it because I respect the fact that the other person who's coming at me has just as complicated and rich a background of experiences informing everything about what they understand about the subject to the gradient at the end of the conversation. And it, it would be foolish of me to try and characterise them in, in, in a sort of shorthand way just to make their point of view easier to dismiss. And sometimes there'll be people I, I can't engage with because I'll find that it's futile for us both. But the criticism around the book, uh, wherever I've seen it, has been fair, has really made me think a lot. Sometimes it's just about phrasing, you know, or emphasis, which might seem kind of, I don't know, um, like petty in the scope of the book, but actually sometimes when you take real care to really say what you mean and lay things out properly, then you can create more understanding. And so the criticism... Uh, actually, funnily enough, is one of the most exhilarating and exciting aspects of it. As obviously, people that say they love it and all that, or they think I'm great, that's nice too. But at the same time, uh, I it's, I could never have foreseen that I would have become this person, you know, that was looking to see what the criticism was, was interested in it, was willing to engage with it. But actually, there's something about me. I think that conflict focuses my mind. So it's about finding a healthy space for that and criticism of my work or engaging in debate and discussion is some was where I get to express something that seems to come natural to me. Sometimes in criticism, I, I recognise that there is uh, that something that I was on the p- periphery of realising, like that it feels real legit. Like, oh yeah, okay, I should yeah, I should have done that. Other things I feel like that it is the other person dealing with their stuff like there's a, sometimes a, a spirit of malevolence sometimes in mm. criticism yeah this is like i feel like there's a few things that are happening now that i'm really interested in getting your take on i feel like um when i hear what are described as all right people on the internet talking about left wingers i sort of feel like they don't seem like the left wing to me. And sometimes when I hear like left wing people talking about sort of right wing, often nationalist, for example, politics, I feel like a, a different kind of sympathy. I sense that old categories might be starting to shift and possibly even mm. dissolve. Yeah. And I think it's just to do with, and I think I've talked to a few people about the failure of liberalism to cater to and deal honestly with working class people. It's meant that, that that it's almost become a redundant political system dealing exclusively, I know this is something you write about and care about, identity politics, which no doubt obviously clearly 
has its place and is important. Yeah. But sometimes I feel that it's been at the cost of different arguments that are to do with where power, wealth and resources are situated. Yeah. Well, first of all, the like the I, there are certain phrases that I really dislike because they're so loaded. Like in Scotland, the term cybernat to describe like a Twitter Scottish nationalist, I think is unhelpful, or un to describe a unionist, or even just the sort of the kind of umbrella term identity politics because it's so charged. Um, I think every for every group, every community has its excesses and it has its problems and it has to refine how it gets its message out there and that extends to the left as well as anyone else. Um, where my thinking has evolved over the last couple of years has, has, has mainly been that I started to become aware that sometimes the path that I would go on through an issue would be set by an interaction that I would have on social media, which would then arouse a level of scepticism that I would now say is unhealthy. So, for example, um, say you share an article uh, online about something like gender, right? Which is a live topic. Now, every now a lot of people have a have a better understanding of at least how to approach these subjects, even just linguistically. The terms that would you would use that would make it easier for you to navigate a conversation. But see, when these issues were just beginning to surface there were a lot of people who really already understood them very very deeply and they were immersed so much in them you know I think of academic communities for example um so there was this weird contradiction with you know intersectionality where how it actually intersected with people who didn't know anything about it hadn't been accounted for and why would it you know, mm. I mean, it seems so self-evident that a person's ability to ascend in society in the sort of traditional kind of capitalist way uh, would be inhibited by various factors of their identity to their gender, to their race, to other aspects like, you know, religion or disabilities that they might have or whatever. That seems obvious. But the way that it's discussed in certain communities, you know, like academic language, jargon, not to be dismissive, then, then like, for people who don't live in those communities and who associate that term with different things, like, you know, in my community, jargon is associated with exploitation and snobbishness because you have different agencies and organisations who appear to be working on your behalf, but really they're concealing the true mechanisms of decision-making from you. So when you have an academic who's of the left coming on talking about something as important as intersectionality in academic language, and they're intersecting on social media with someone from a working class community whose whole sense of priority is different and the whole moral matrix is just a wee bit different, then you're going to end up with a conflict there that necessarily doesn't have to happen. And and for me, what I found was when I tried to inter when I tried to engage with these issues clumsily, revealing my biases, revealing my, my lack of understanding of things, finding it very difficult to reconcile my experience as a young man growing up in a community with the world that is being told I'm being told exists by you know academics and activists, then you get yourself into some scrapes, and when you get yourself into some scrapes, mud gets slung. And then you start thinking, well, that interaction must be as a result of their politics rather than it could just be a fluke that you've react. You're having an interaction with people who all sorts of things could be going on for them. 
And so as times went on, then I've tried to look at my initial impulse or reaction to an issue a bit like my appetite. Um, I don't want to eat these blueberries, although I know I should eat them. If there was a Kit Kat there, I would eat it straight away. And the fact my body's telling me to eat the Kit Kat is very compelling and overwhelming and creates a, a, a whole body of um, uh, very compelling logic to why I should eat the Kit Kat it merges in my mind to the point it's gone before I realise it. But if I just wait for a minute, observe that impulse to eat the Kit Kat until it passes, then I probably will reach for a blueberry. And I, I realise actually that same kind of irrationality applies to how I certainly uh, have behaved on social media and sometimes still do. And it's over time I've developed an awareness not to dive in. And not just because I don't want to get into some scrapes, because it could be an exhausting on social media. Uh, and, 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 uh, and, and, I, and I certainly, like, maybe this is vain, but I certainly wouldn't want people to think that I'm antagonistic to gender equality or any other form of equality because I'm not mm. um, but at the same time then it's difficult sometimes when you're dealing with people with all different backgrounds all different experience on a medium like social media where there's just a glass ceiling for our rationality because we just can't we simply can't model reality on that scale mm. you know it's just like it's like a bee banging off a window that just doesn't know there's a window there or a dog being able to hear certain frequencies that we can't pick up there's something about social media that there's a fundamental misunderstanding and that's why i think like more and more it's better to get in the room with someone and and i've found actually when i do put myself in those situations especially with people that i've disagreed with nine times out of ten a natural cooperation instinct kicks in because that's who we are as a species. But on social media, it's different because there's no implication for what you say. You feel kind of disconnected. You categorise people into little easy to understand boxes that make it easier for you to retain whatever your view is. Um, so even in the book, the chapter I have about, you know, so-called identity politics, that's that, that was one of the earliest chapters that I wrote. And I do think that there's there's a lot of legitimate stuff in there about some of the activism. I mean, I know that we have to be very passionate. Sometimes we have to call people out. We have to challenge power or authority. But when we do this through social media, then sometimes uh, there might be other things motivating us that we don't realise. I mean, I give an example in the book of me going after people when really underneath there was a lot of personal resentment going on, class resentments. Uh, resentments that someone else was being talked about when I wasn't being talked about. And although these things are kind of ulterior, uh, you know, you've got to kind of, like, if you really want to be robust and you really want to be efficient and you really, really want to bring about change, then running parallel to all the understanding of the issues and the activism, you've got to be checking in with yourself as well and just, like, you know, taking that inventory. What What's going on for me today? And that's that. That's a message in the book that's resonating with a lot of people, especially in working class communities. A necessary awareness of your, I think, like you one would conventionally refer to it as your spiritual state, <laughs> your spiritual well being. I think a lot, Darren, about the kind of palette of uh, emotional experiences that are available that could be acculturated in various ways due to the 
like you know, who knows what like you said there is always going to be an intersection between the sort of personal and political you, you might misdiagnose your feelings as being or underwrite your feelings socially when really it's a personal experience i think it's in um what you said there about being able to develop a kind of distance between sort of impulse and action whether it's being reactionary online or eating a kit kat I think is very, very is very significant because like and and the the typical vehicle for that understanding would have been sort of religious or spiritual. This is what takes has uh, previously been a template for right. You're a human being. You're alive in the world. You're going to die. You're going to experience jealousy and fear and all these things. Here's a way of mediating these experiences. That's kind of been mocked. It's deteriorated. Its role has been challenged for many obvious reasons that are valid and evident. But I, my personal feeling is that lost along with that has been the a, a vital method that human beings require for negotiating our experience through life. Now, you're a person that's uh, you're in recovery from substance misuse issues. Mostly alcohol, but I did, I did use, for me, sedatives were a real kick. You like a sedative? Like a good sedative, Russell, I. And, uh, but what I found was that as much as, you know, sedatives without the alcohol, I didn't find much problem kind of regulating that. But when I threw the alcohol into the equation, then anything else I was taking would get out of control. And I would, you know, wake up in an ambulance uh, or or, uh, or 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 do stuff that uh, on one hand I can recall very vividly, but have no idea why I put myself in that situation. No idea what what was motivating me to behave, you know, so ludicrously. I mean, it got to a point where everywhere I went, uh, you know, as a as a sort of like as a performing artist and pubs and clubs and all of that, something would kick off. Yeah, you know, something would kick off. And it wouldn't even necessarily because I was going there with the intention to do that. But then the more I did these things, the more of a reputation I developed within that very hyper-masculine community as someone who needed to be brought down a peg or two. And, you know, this is how violence in male communities work. I just didn't realise I was subject to the same forces as a lot of the, the wee guys I sort of maybe thought I was above. But actually, you know, when I when I drank and, and, and used drugs then... Um, for the temporarily rele- temporary relief I got from it, uh, I just found I wasn't able to <laughs> modulate my behaviour in any way, shape or form. And so I've been in recovery, I've been in this recovery journey for about eight years um, and I've had two two-year two, two periods of yeah. uh, abstinence from alcohol and uh, drugs. So I assume then that you belong to various support groups and communities mm-hmm. that are, 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 because I, I can obviously recovery myself and I find that to be a necessary component but I, I, I also enjoy the I like the philosophy as well of the of 12 step recovery I like the like and I think it's what do I want to say redolent of some of the stuff that you've been talking about i.e inventory taking awareness of your past the idea that you have got and there are options of how we act in certain situations that that first impulse like these things are sort of uh 12 step staples the idea that okay right i'm feeling this impulse and and of course the 
idea that um, that when drinking and using, you find yourself in situations where, where it's all seemingly inexplicably, you find yourself in situations of con- conflict where your better judgment and better nature becomes kind of irrelevant, that your skills and talents uh, become uh, sort of fall by the wayside while you sort of perpetuate negative patterns what have you learned from being in recovery and sobriety that's been surprising Mm, good question uh first of all i learned to actually begin to imagine that there was another way to live Uh. so when i when i was in my 20s i was pretty much convinced that i was going to die young my mother died at 36 so it's not surprising that i internalized that kind of fatalistically in a way and then uh I remember identifying early on that I had a problem because I'd seen so much of it and and so it was obvious. It was when I was living in supported accommodation. I was about to become homeless. I got referred to like a flat, 24-hour staff support workers. I had a real entourage of support, you know. I just wasn't in a place where I had any insight into my problems. And uh, I, you know, constructed a very, very uh, big ego to sort of fortify myself from reality. And it was in there, I remember making a decision to buy a bottle of cider rather than buy food. But I didn't drink the cider, this is the thing. I remember going to get it just to have it in the house. And what that tells me is that there was a sort of, there was a sense of camaraderie with the alcohol. There was no loneliness. It wasn't even about consuming it. It was about just knowing it was there. And... You know, over time, my alcohol and drug use accelerated. I was still very focused on my music. I was still very active in the community. Although I had no real sense of, you know, the snowball that was gathering in terms of, uh, you know, the longer I delayed taking action, you know, on the sort of assumption that I'm I'm too young to do anything about this or I'll Mm. be fine. All the classic denials that come in early. Um... Then it was, you know, things got rough in my mid-twenties when I knew I had a drink problem and I tried to stop and I couldn't. I would always find myself drinking again. I wasn't a fallabout drunk. I wasn't a kind of slurry speech drunk. Mm. But I wouldn't go out without a half bottle, a buckfast, at least on me, just to tipple on the subway, uh, sometimes at work, you know, where sometimes I would be working in the community, you know, I remember running away into the toilet to to tan a half bottle and then running back to a youth project that I was working on, um, and you know these these things just did I did I didn't see the kind of abdication of responsibility there. I didn't see that that I had a duty of care. wasn't I wasn't the only youth worker present, and I'm pretty sure people around me knew I was drinking, but they showed a lot of compassion towards me, mm. but. At the same time, what that shows me and something I try to return to is that in those moments where I feel very certain of what's going on, very certain of what I think, where I am, even whether I'm safe or not, whether I know what reality is, then if I look all through my life, I see examples of me not having a clue, not having a first clue, but that being kind of relative to my sense of surety about what's going on. So it's made me more reluctant to truly commit to any idea that is attractive to me because my past tells me that sometimes my attraction to these ideas is about fortifying myself with something else. And, you know, maybe that's me sitting on the fence, 
maybe that's a very kind of complicated, uh, overly complicated or convoluted way of, of saying I don't know where, what I believe anymore. Um, but, you know, th- these last few years, and by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm no saint in recovery. Like, I'm shit at recovery, right? Um, I'm shit at the disciplines. I'm shit at sharing. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm shit at, I'm shit at being there for other people. Um, I'm, I'm, I can be there for other people all day, but in recovery, I'm shit at being there for people. And the, the thing though that, that the thing that I've got the most out of it so far, and I know I have so long to go with it, is that my default settings have changed. So an envelope came through the door that I didn't want to open. I'd just drink. Mm. You know, my default setting now is open the envelope. So, so I have been kind of upgraded in a certain sense. I have a baseline functionality that wasn't there before, mm. and it wasn't there even before I started drinking. Um, and and even though I'm, I mean, maybe I'm being a bit mean to myself in terms of of recovery, part of my defects perhaps. But at the same time, um, I, I, I mean, I can slip into self-absorption very easily, especially when people want to talk to me about me all the time. But at the same time, I find myself. Um, you know, my mind occupied by what's going on with other people or, or sometimes even just like throwing myself into someone else's stuff uh, because I, I understand it as well as a, there might be a benefit to them. It takes me out of me where I get a bit of clarity and I get a bit of distance from what later turns out to be something usually quite insignificant. So recovery has has, has changed the whole repertoire in terms of how I cope with life, how I manage it, but where I have struggled and where I continue to struggle is getting any sense of momentum with working these principles into my life on a daily basis. I do on the spot inventory, do you know what I mean? I I, I don't write it down. Uh, I'll do some mantras or serenity stuff in my mind as I'm on the go, but I won't get it down on the floor and do it. And I can feel the resistance. It's so strong, Russell. That's how I know that's what I should do because there's something saying, you know you need to do this, get down. And I can feel even now recalling that feeling, there's something about me that's so, I I want to say rebellious as if there's something cool about it, but it's just ego. It's just, it's like, no, this wouldn't work for me uh, when I think that's how it speaks to everybody. I think it's to do with having a lot of negative primary experiences of authority that the idea of loving authority becomes anathema so resistance rebellion and conflict become default the idea of benevolent loving authority adam curtis you know the documentary maker adam curtis he's been bandying around the phrase a lot i don't know where he picked it up uh in whose loving service is perfect freedom which is obviously like a religious idea in you know god in whose loving service there is perfect freedom. Now, obviously, I'm not trying to put forward an unsophisticated or at least antiquated idea of uh, monotheism or a- any theology, but when you talk totemically about having a bottle of cider just as some affiliate mm-hmm. in your loneliness, this as well seems to me that the sort of the ongoing, or well, an ongoing, 
narrative that's running throughout this story is this need for some sublime divine connection or at least transcendent connection a connection and i don't mean necessarily transcendent in some sort of mystical sort of stars and wonder way but uh, uh, beyond self beyond self I, I, in my own recovery i continually surprised but then comforted by how in my using there were attributes that can be alchemized in uh, positives when I'm clean, like, you know, dedication, devotion, determinedness to uh, this is the path I'm going to pursue, wanting to get out of myself, wanting to crack my head open and annihilate awakeness, like there's something unbearable about being material, like I've got to destroy it, I've got Mm. to destroy myself, a kind of, you know, sort of death libido, a kind of I want to be dead, Mm. like that I feel like the process of recovery, which I think is just a technique for having a spiritual experience that's my my take on it what i find reassuring about that is ah it works spirituality like i've been got into jujitsu you know and it's like jujitsu works it's like if you do jujitsu like that technique will work for you and if it don't work because you're not doing it properly and i think recovery is a little bit like that if you can follow these principles you can trans these are uh, many of these negative many of these flaws these defects can, we, we can alter and also they, they don't at least even if they don't go because for me personally the wound hasn't gone I still like I've been doing it 15 years one day at a time and I still have days of uh, times of feeling worthless fearful so self-centered it's suffocating but what I have got say yesterday when I was like I'd had argument on the train with my wife right was we come up here to scotland on the train with uh our baby there's a bit where a baby baby fell over and banged her head and like i'm not used to being a parent yet obviously maybe you never get used to it mm. she's got a big bang on it, like a bruise come up on her head and i felt sort of bewildered by it but i knew that i had to sort of stay cool i felt sort of very blaming and irritated by my wife immediately and just before that, there'd been a woman on the train who's coming up and down the aisles like only people, mad people on trains do simultaneously. Yeah, what's that all about? Yeah, because you're down. <laughs> <laughs> like, but it's, again, it's a perfect analogy, I think, sometimes, that life is a train and you can either sit nicely in your seat and behave or you can run up and down the aisles <laughs> bothering people. Sooner or later, you're going to get to the station and yeah. be disgorged yeah. <laughs> into whatever is after life. Anyway, this woman sort of wound my missus up by sort of, she recognised me and said something that indicated that she knew me. But I was like, this is a mad person she's pregnant and off her head can't you like those mm. two things already are prime indicators of a lunatic anyway like that sort of set i felt so angry and so full of rage but but within the uh symphony of madness i could just in the background had an awareness of do not act on these feelings do not act on it like you know like in that instance not drink or take drugs just don't get too angry don't even respond yeah. i no that has become that has become probably the primary uh aspect of my strategy with a lot of things and ho- at home uh and work or at least knowing when to react or like you know just having that moment of awareness where you allow a kind of menu system to emerge to select from it you know like who wants to be a millionaire or something do i give a lippy response do i just say no you're right honey uh, you know mm. what they had to sulk for five hours, mm. um, or whatever, and so, but like it's a skill, isn't it? Um, and I think you know when I mean just even talking about you know parenthood and the whole the, the whole dynamic of, of that that's that's really where you re, re, really need to bring your A game, isn't it? Like 
I mean, forget what's going on with work or forget what's going on outside of that. Like, your kid looking is, is, is instinctively looking to you to see how she should respond. So your awareness not to freak out because she's banged her head, that the, then that that's formative, and mm. you know the book talks a lot about uh, how you, the the extent of what a child learns, the extent or the degrees of adversity they experience. You know, banging your head might be adverse depending on what your upbringing is. For other people, then they'll experience extreme violence. They'll experience the constant threat of violence, which in many ways can be more formative than a violent act um, because it, as well as it creating expectations in a child that the world is hostile, that people are unreliable, that people can't be trusted, that harm is imminent, mm. uh, then it also has a, a, a strong physiological impact, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, as a child develops, uh, their exposure to those, those toxic forms of stress. I mean, we know stress is a natural reaction. It's one of the reasons why we've evolved and survived. It prepares us for conflict. We become adrenalized. Our whole uh, inventory of possible responses to things gets whittled down to fight or flight, and that makes us very robust at dealing with an imminent threat. But when a child is exposed to an unnatural level of it, they become maladapted to normality. Mm. And so this has been my experience where as the threats have dissipated, as the as uh, as, uh, as there's some sort of stability on the horizon in life, I've found that, that those have been my most challenging moments because I've been unable to take it at face value because I've got into such a, a habit Mm. of assuming the worst is going to happen. Mm. And when you when you scale that up in communities that are densely populated, where adverse experiences happen more often, where uh, they create more problems and more cycles of adversity, and you put it in the social and economic and political context, then what you have is an engine room for all of the overlapping social problems that we experience in Britain or that we experience in societies like ours. But... I feel like the role that stress plays uh, is 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 underemphasized and not well enough understood by a lot of the people who man who are managing poverty, taking decisions about poverty. The good thing about that is that if stress is the issue, if stress is a big issue for people, stress undermines a person's ability, for example, to to make informed decisions around diet, for example, right? So we all know what it's like to wake up and be like. Today, I'm going to put into action all this clear thinking I've had recently around eating. So I'm going to start off with like a glass of water, get myself going, slice of bread, boiled egg, off we go. Then the next thing, like you're in a working class community, you've got to go to the doctors. It's teeming with people, it's two hours late, you've waited two weeks for an appointment. Uh, suddenly you become stressed out and, and the fight or flight comes in. And and your 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 whole clear thinking is reduced to this binary of eat the Kit Kat, don't eat the Kit Kat. You could replace the Kit Kat with alcohol, drugs, whatever you like. I'm not saying that it's as simple as this, but it's a way to try and illustrate for people who sometimes get a bit baffled as to why some people in lower class communities attempt seem seem to sabotage their own lives or seem to not live in accordance with how people in Radio Four think that we should live. That it is universal. Why wouldn't everyone eat couscous, for example? Then it's because it's because stress and the things that people do to manage stress to comfort themselves in moments of stress. Then when the stress dissipates, 
what the left is, what the left with are these self-insistent, gradually failing coping strategies to manage it, and those become the problems for people, and and uh, and, and 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 people in poor communities and activists, we have a right to be angry about the social conditions which contribute to that um, that kind of malaise that can set in. But at the same time, the problem I have. Uh, when when anger's my only fuel source, is it's the anger that has me reaching out for the coping strategy. It's the anger and all the things I do to manage it that shortens my life and, and makes me un, more unhealthy. And it's and that's a kind of the the, the book analyzes the different compositions of different types of anger, and it's about getting the balance between when you have a legitimate reason to be angry and how you sort of marshal that anger in pursuit of some kind of goal, whether it be at the level of your own family or whether it be, you know, broader social issues, and when actually you have to find another way to orientate yourself and another way to regiment your thinking because not all anger, legitimate or not, is healthy. And and you know and I go in I go into detail in that in the book. That's that's where you know some people on the left quite understandably will say, um, you know this is a cop out. You know this is a cop out or 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 uh, you know anger's what brings change about, and 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 that's true to a certain extent. But I think it's it's intermittent anger with meaningful purposeful action rather than just this endless. Um, expelling of anger and seeing everything through a lens of anger where you have bad faith assumptions about the people who disagree with you and this makes you more angry and you sort of whip yourself up into that kind of like a panic almost I mean I certainly did mm. certainly did especially when I was drinking I wanted society to burn down like I wanted it all to end. I, I used to have doomsday fantasies and all that I used to think that you know we should tear this all down violently <laughs> right and just begin again and actually like I realise now that as much as I believe in radical change in a number of areas from the economic system to how we engage people in politics to social housing drug policy at the same time uh, I don't know if just like throwing a big bowling ball through it all at once is going to do anything for the people who are most vulnerable because they'll only become more vulnerable when the people who are in position to Take the power when it's up in the air. You know, they're just like, all right, we're just waiting for the ball to drop again. Here we go. Right, okay. Mm. Now what? And so I wanted to write a book that people can use when they're finished reading it. So I can't write a book like uh, Raul Martinez, who wrote Creating Freedom, which is a, a, a brilliant analysis of the myth of choice and the myth of free will. And that while we can, to a certain extent, um, you know, make decisions, our choices are much narrower than we think. Uh, at the same time, you can't take that book into a community like Pollock um, and say, right, here you go, there's your answer. Because the things that people are dealing with in Pollock are different. So the analysis on the left of poverty, I see it as a sort of similar to how, you know, scientists and physicists talk about you've got the material world that's subject to the force of gravity, uh, and different laws of causality and and we all understand that and we use those rules to make life more predictable to orientate ourselves within it and then you have 
the, the world of quantum mechanics and subatomic particles where things behave differently. And there's a whole different conversation going on about what time means in this realm and all of that stuff. So I see the, the discussion about poverty like that. You have the overarching issues, the overarching debate around economics, politics, um, neoliberalism, for example. Mm. And then you have the minutiae of people's day-to-day lives and mm. how do we... Uh, think about and discuss the impacts that our choices have, our lifestyle, mm. and how that not only like affects us, but the cumulative effect on that of kind of delivering adrenaline to the heart of the system that we want to dismantle. I mean, how many activists do you know that are always going to the pub after the revolutionary meeting? Mm. You know, like, that's not a criticism. Like, I'm, I'll be in McDonald's after a big diatribe on Facebook about, you know, corporatocracy and all of that. And, uh, and, and, and so... These these things need to be considered. You know, mm. there is a sort of there is an aspect of self-efficacy and dare I say it, personal responsibility mm. in conjunction with support, obviously, and 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 that's the the, the stuff that I hear um, underemphasized on the left. I like your analogy about physics and quantum physics there because I was thinking about that, and it's like there's an identifiable other realm of physics. There are identifiable trends and stories that can be observed and accounted for. But as you look more deeply, you see that there are complex systems that are not obeying our rules or the sort of rules as they sort of may superficially appear to be. This makes me think of two things. One, when you're talking about the particularity of your experiences in Pollock as a person that has mental health issues, substance abuse issues, threat of violence, so it requires a authentic and particular voice to uh, illustrate specifically what's happening in that area. And possibly if you're living in London and uh, you're interested in transgender issues or you're a transgender person, then you need to understand that particular experience. And... Uh, like you said earlier as well, mate, like that often when you get into a room with someone that you may previously have had a dispute with, you find a cooperative solution. It makes me feel that oddly social media has is not providing fluid communication, but is compounding prejudice and isolationism. Um, possibly what's required now is a sort of actual representative democracy where we acknowledge yeah. that there are so many... Pers- particular experiences even in a small group of islands like this that that you can no longer have parliamentary democracy as we understand it and we're starting to see categories fall apart we're starting to see sort of interwoven uh, narratives now that are, are full of contradiction yeah. and that as long as like that i feel like, another thing i was thinking when you were talking about the sort of frustration of dealing, for example, with the health service and the easy accessibility. I could even see the Kit Kat machine in that waiting room. Mm. Like that, uh, that, um, that what really is, in my view, quite likely is that this is not inadvertent. <laughs> this is an engineered experience. Yes. Yeah. An engineered experience because it creates a kind of impasse and it's quite difficult i think to you know some towards the end you arrived at the idea of personal responsibility and, and i i 
But my, my experience is that that's where we have to arrive at as men or women or however we identify. We have to arrive at a point of, right, I'm going to have some authority. I'm going to have an inner resource that I commune with. I'm going to belong to a community or communities. But yeah. at some level, I need to lose the mantle of victimhood. But a part of achieving that maturation will be having been mentored by people that I identify with that are further down the path. Yeah, absolutely. Can I have a toilet break quickly? We're not live, are we? No. But you can we... have that. I'll Is just that keep okay? things um... I'll keep things going. There's one there and there's one there if you want more privacy. No, that's fine. Thank you. I'll just keep... What I might do is just... Yeah, that's right. Sorry, I'm really busting. You must never be bursting for a, a wee in, a, in an interview, Darren. It's very bad for people. This is Russell Brand. I'm actually taking this opportunity to just gently eat blueberries and talk to Jen and Charlie. We're about at about an hour, aren't we? Yeah, thank you. Yeah? Well, that's brilliant. We've done all we need to do. I mean, we could have wrapped up there, but we should give Darren the opportunity. Jen, do you, um, we can leave this in. Do you want, is there any questions or anything you'd like to see covered, given that you're much more of fay with Darren's work than me? You must never apologise for that. You've handed it in such a charming way, and it's given me an opportunity to have a look at these notes, and which I've, well, between us, we've contrived to cover quite expertly. Cool. But well, not the to... personal responsibility thing. It's cool if you want. Don't pretend to care about personal responsibility. Just fucked off to the lavatory <laughs> right in the middle of the question about it. Now, look, this is a perfect opportunity for us to uh, to. What do I want to say? Uh, segue. So, yeah, listen, mate, this is a question I didn't done. You say your music's primarily a, uh, aimed at young men from disadvantaged areas. Do you say that? And what are you trying to communicate to them? Well, it's not necessarily that I was targeting them. Mm. It was just that that was the community that was most into the music. I mean, I think the audience is broadening now. Like, I have a French show happening in August and a 200-capacity venue. With uh, French people? Uh, uh, no, French. Oh, Fringe. Ah, oh. Yeah. <laughs> I'd have been much more interested Not in... Not that international, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, the, fr uh, the Fringe. It's only a matter of so, time. So it will be... Uh, and that will be bringing together different elements uh, as well as the rap and music, elements of comedy and obviously a bit of rhetoric. But that's... You know, I'll be doing 24 shows then and, and I would imagine actually those are arenas where the young men probably wouldn't venture to. You know, they, they tend to listen to music and... Uh, different environments mm. so actually the, the, the audience is broadening but I'm always trying to carry a message about what people in those communities go through and really what I find is I use different filters and lenses to frame it and shape it in certain ways so that I can be as effective as possible at creating understanding um, you know it means making compromises here and there like for example in the book I talk about an incident in a prison where a young guy uh, got slashed over a disagreement about a piece of toast, and what I'm trying to what I was trying to say was that in these communities, violence is a form of language, mm. right? So it's not a moral binary. It's not are you a pacifist or are you violent? Violence in these communities can be, uh, you know, like like language. It depends on context to really understand it properly, the root of it, and also it can have different accents. It can be vulgar. It can be coarse, it can be disgusting and repulsive, um, and also sometimes it can be quite poetic and sublime, depending on the situation. You know, I think of my wee brother punching me at Christmas once because I was just coming in drunk every Christmas with a big mouth and my bottle of Buckfast, not realising 
that he was hurting because I had been gone for so long. And actually, a punch in the mouth was a thing that catalyzed one of many things that catalyzed me to start considering how my drinking was impacting other people rather than my victim, my victimology about it all. Brilliant. He had distilled it down, much like the Buckfast, is that the drink itself, into a single visceral punch in the face. It was a warning shot. It was a warning shot across the bow. I didn't feel like we were going to get into a fight. I didn't think that that's what he was saying to me. It was obviously quite humbling. Uh, and uh, but when I went away and thought about it then I realised actually this is quite a good thing it's happened so th- in that context that's violence being used as a form of communication and language so in the prison the person who ends up slashing someone over a piece of toast they might be doing a long bid who knows for what so if they see that someone is trying to wind them up in front of people usually as a way to sort of move themselves up within the hierarchy to ward off the threat of violence. Because everyone is trying to say, don't be violent towards me in a number of different ways. One way is to be the crazy guy who you just shouldn't fuck with. So the guy who slashed someone over a piece of toast, what he could be trying to do is mitigate or minimise the threat of violence towards him in future. Not even consciously, but that this is his... This is the language that he's learned in the community and he's very fluent in it and very sophisticated in it. And it's not really that barbaric when you think about game theory and you think about how nations behave and you think about how countries behave. This is an aspect of human behaviour. This is something that we do strategically to keep ourselves safe as project a sort of project a a readiness for conflict, Mm. a proficiency for conflict. Because that means other people, predators, are less likely to try and exploit vulnerabilities. Um, so, so just you know, the violence, the, the language of violence is, is something that I try to get across. And but but you you have to talk about that issue in a certain way for a middle class audience to get it. Because mm. if you just say, well, violence is a form of language, that'll be the kind of thing that people will be like what. You know, some people will be like, some people will get it. Some people say, no, violence is just wrong. Violence is such and such. That boy who used a knife and slashed someone, glad he's in prison, he deserves to be there. It might very well be, but we can still understand the interior of what's going yes. on that motivates the behaviour. I like this. Um, I like the idea of violence, excuse me, as a language on, uh, like, however you scale it, as a matter of fact, because it is a form of communication. It's a persuasive form of communication. My daughter, she's in the early stages of learning language. She's recognised that, excuse me, again, coughing gets a response. So she's incorporated coughing into a communication and, like, mimicking the sound of sneezing. I talked to her, like, early on, a brilliant academic, Brad Evans, uh, about violence, you know, at an international level, or the threat of violence, like you said, growing up in an environment where the threat of violence is, uh, a continual, uh, is continual. And, for like, for me, the, the type of violence that's used, the way that violence is described, and our interpretation of violence is very significant, in a sense that, because violation can occur at the level of language. Violence, can, obviously, is occurring continually when it's prohibiting people's rights, excluding people from conversation. And, in a sense, it's a matter of taste, whether or not slashing someone over a slice of toast is worse than other forms of prohibitive violence that prevent people getting educated. Yeah, so I like that idea. I I think that's interesting as well, that sometimes people can conceal what really what they're doing. People can conceal invoking a power dynamic as a sort of, of, of a kind of, I don't know, 
a, a, a better, stronger moral sense. So, for example, someone will say, uh, you know, violence is wrong, but they might be cut. They might be have. They might be more enfranchised. They might have mm. more agency in a yes. dynamic, so they can also exert their way of seeing it over someone else who doesn't have that agency. And 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 really, what what my my sort of it's not a solution. It's not a manifesto. When people ask me the questions about how do we redress this deficit between what working class people actually experience, you know, understanding the richness of that, the poetry of that, understanding the complexity of that, and understanding even some of the mad moral logic behind violence and gang culture, for example. How do we reconcile that at the level of the people that disseminate or create or commission culture where there's a sort of loss in translation? And it's because social mobility dictates that people who grow up down here uh, they, 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 they're, they're also fighting against the gravitational force of the poverty. So it's harder for them to ascend into positions where they could influence how people think about it and actually, you know, a sort of temporary solution to it. I'm not saying this is a panacea for social inequality by any stretch of the imagination, but even just to create conditions for a healthier dialogue to occur, for mutual understanding, a cross-pollination of different ideas uh, and an understanding as well of the other, you know, seeing the other up close, actually they're no longer the other. Mm. And I've realised this in so many instances, whether it be my dealings with like police, for example, when I worked mm. with the violence reduction unit, or whether that be, you know, middle class people, middle class people, um, you know, really giving me their time and giving me space to be me and not intervening in my life. But like getting as much out of me as I'm getting out of them, and that me just see, seeing them a bit differently. So, so that I would envision that you know if we have quotas for, understandably, we have quotas for people on along lines of identity. But even as one of the BBC news readers, uh, I can't even remember her name now. But when there was a debate about the gender pay gap, and that was all quite rightly going on, she then chipped in a few days later, and she was like, "Yeah, but this there's also a class issue at play here." And everybody was a bit less sort of like really that got a bit less friction that got a, a bit less traction sorry and 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 that's what, what what a lot of us have been saying and a lot of experience because class is so nebulous it's where all these other issues converge all these issues of identity you know the intersectional analysis sometimes class is not prominent enough obviously because rightly issues of race and gender and sexuality are are, are, are increasingly taking primacy which is what I think should happen. But we've also got to think about class, what the barriers are, and some of the specificity around what it's like to come from a lower class background. Also, what you said, mate, about social mobility is inherent within that interpretation is like as soon as you move out of that environment, you necessary to move out of that environment, as we've discussed, is the adoption of a new lexicon learning new rules you're no longer part of that community also the reason i think it still remains taboo is because my sense is you know peter tatchell the gay rights activist he said like in the end people will always yield on civil rights issues and i think uh, like and I'm, i'm not wishing to diminish the struggles certainly not of bloody malcolm x you know but like you know the civil rights issue but like when it comes to power and finance, you know, and, it's, and obviously there is an, an intersection there. Like, you know, eventually race and uh, you know, will become about power. But like 
class is distinctly about economics and absolutely about yeah. economics and poverty. So you're immediately, that's why I would say that you're more immediately buttressed when you start to approach those issues. Because yeah. where does it lead? It leads to redistribution of wealth. It leads to breaking down structures and systems that are in place to... Uh, to maintain intransigence. Yeah, when we on the left, when we think about class, it's about proximity to opportunity, relationship to labour, um, and what I'm trying to do in the book is create a kind of emotional map of that, a social context in which all of this other stuff is kind of couched. You know, so explores, for example. Um, why people don't engage in consultations or why they're cynical about them. I mean, look at the Grenfell Tower incident, right? You had the Grenfell Action blog, which had been writing for nearly a decade before that fire happened, and they were regarded with contempt by the local authority who tried to evade them, threaten them. This is a blog that forecasts that it would take a catastrophic loss of life before anybody would look into how that building was mismanaged. Mm. I mean, this is... This is actually disgusting. You can see where my anger, uh, as much as I try to conceal it, comes from. And it's not just because of that tragic incident. It's because that that dismissal of local concerns expressed in a local way, because it's not glamorous, because people aren't powerful, so no one's covering it, no journalists are there until the bodies are being pulled out of the building, then, uh, then, then what happens is people, they don't become apathetic because they don't care. They don't become apathetic to politics because they're not clever. It's because they know fine well there is absolutely no fucking point because the consultations are cosmetic, the decision's already been made, the cladding's going on, it doesn't matter what you think. The motorway's getting built, it doesn't matter if it's your park. This is all going to look nice for the people driving in from the suburbs who want to go to Frankie and Benny's every weekend. And if you don't like this constellation of uh, bowling alleys and casinos and cinema complexes on your doorstep, extracting profit from your community and offering you precarious, low-paid work in return, then you just don't understand the big picture. You just don't get the big picture. And what's interesting about a lot of these developments that are cited as innovation, that are cited as progress, in my community, for example, the big hungry monster that was erected on the motorway junction that everyone protested next and the graveyard of the school that got bulldozed that everyone protested, or the two schools up the road that everyone protested. Uh, every area the community actually showed its voice. I mean, we've got people in our community that were occupying community centres, occupying swimming pools, and people just got ignored. And then 10 years later emerges this beautiful, uh, enticing American-style shopping mall that's designed specifically to arouse all those feelings of wonderment, all those feelings of euphoria, all those things that activate impulsivity. And I go in there and I love it and I hate it. And the thing about these that's so interesting is that you go to any town where they've been built, right? Try and find me one that has kept the name of the community where it's built in. Mm. The one in my scheme is called Silverburn, which is a fictional shopping village that's been created to edit Pollock out of its own economic success story. So now we have tailbacks along the motorway that no one wanted, that was built in spite of protests. Every weekend, 
of people trying to get to Pollock and they don't know they're going to Pollock. They don't know they're in Pollock. They don't know they're in that community. They have no sense of it. And there's a little exhibition outside the toilet that shows what the Pollock Centre used to look like. And there's no mention of the protest. There's no mention of Colin McLeod, the environmental activist who lived in a tree for over a year to stop it from being cut down. There's no mention of it. And, 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 and that tells a community there's no point in engaging. Your community centre is now this place where if you don't spend money in the next half an hour, a security guard is going to approach you and ask you why the fuck you're here. And, you know, for me, then that's... That's... That's why people become disengaged. Because that's a natural response. So apathy is not the natural response, but they just think there is no point because there is no point hmm. to a certain extent. Um, but the political class are going to have to wise up to this sooner rather than later because it's creating some real ruptures in our society that not even uh, people like Peter Mandelson could have predicted. Mm. You know, like people as wise as Peter Mandelson who, you know, still wants everything to go back to the way that he thought it should be. I'm not saying everything about centrism is bad. I like centrism in the extent that there's more tolerance in the middle for a broader section of ideas. You can express views that people maybe on the radical left would find um, not shocking, but you know you would be accused of being a sellout or you would be accused of some form of betrayal. Um, you know for 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 entertaining ideas for for saying for example you know much as I disagree with Tony Blair on the Iraq War. There were some other aspects where he seemed to talk quite sensibly about things. Or I liked talked... it when he done them keepy apps with yeah, Kevin Keegan. Yeah. Aye, aye, aye. That's good. <laughs> you do oh, the keepy apps. Aye, but you see what I mean, though. Of course, the, I do. The the the, the um. So I, I, centrism I, I, is not bereft of uh, yeah, positivity. Exactly. Yeah, but this... at the same time, the people in that those are the people that called the keys. Those are the people that mm. called the shots in the media and politics. They better get wise to the fact that what's happening in our society is something they can't contain anymore, and and that there has to be whether it's a whether it's just one big wave of radicalism. I doubt that's going to happen. But we need radical ideas in areas of social housing. You know, why can't we train the people in prison to build houses and then when they get out, give them a job straight away? building houses because we need houses and we need people to be rehabilitated in prison and so why don't we just take the people and why don't we just take the land and just there it goes what's so difficult about that well i mean in a sense that's a rhetorical question and and and, uh, and uh, um i like what you're saying there mate about the that shopping center was it called silverbrook silverburn silverburn um ours was lakeside um, blue water over the way in Kent, sort of deliciously anonymous, utopian terms abstracted mm. from the community precisely because colonisation needn't be an international endeavour, but colonisation continues in the nations that inspire them and, of course, perhaps most significantly in our own consciousness. That story of the emasculation and castration that people feel when their voices aren't heard when their voices are ignored very very powerful and i agree with you darren people none of us know what the consequences are likely to be but i sense this is what i'm piecing together a little bit that um when there were the 
Arab Spring, this is how Adam Curtis explained this to me, is that like, you know, people were excited that social media seemed to be this tool that could create sort of movement. But but when the power of a vacuum occurred after subsequent revolutionary movements, it was people with a pre-existing idea like the uh, Islamic Brotherhood, people that have got, look, we got an idea, we got a system, you know, like whereas Occupy had some slogans and good intentions and what a beautiful moment it was, but no subsequent strategy that could be deployed. And like, you know, this evident resurgence of ethno-nationalism and a kind of a willing like the the thing that seems to most mirror or express the inner experience is gonna be the most resonant is gonna be the most attractive and if what you're feeling is rage then rhetoric that tends towards anger is gonna seem kind of appropriate it's gonna it's gonna chime huh and this is what trump understands well Mm. and this is what farage understands well and to some extent, this is what any politician understands well, because in order for a politician, again, they have to triangulate and a sizable enough section of the working class vote to use as a battering ram before they then renege on all their promises and tailor it more to a sort of politically enfranchised uh, sort of um, middle class audience. But the, 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 the what I have found is that political behaviour and pockets of deprivation is not always motivated by the same things that motivate other voters. There's a retribution aspect to it. There's an aspect of wanting to get back at the people you feel have excluded you. So there's an aspect of uh, people voting Trump because they're fed up with uh, being lectured Mm. and patronised or being excluded and, and, and when you're living in conditions of stress and you're 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 consumed by the day to day survival of life and, 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 and your work and your stagnant wages and your boss treating you like shit and and and, and, and a culture that doesn't appropriately affect, uh, reflect your experience where you feel stereotyped, caricatured, nuances missed. The cumulative effect of all of that is this assumption that there's people just over there somewhere they're deciding all the shit and that they don't have your interests at heart. And they, those people are very bad at articulating or even detecting that feeling in people. Mm. Up pops Farage. Met- metropolitan liberal elites. Up pops Trump. We're going to drain the swamp, you know? And, and, and so I'm not, saying, I'm not saying that's right, but I'm saying that a lot of people sometimes, when you, when you look at Brexit, for example... If if, we're, if people are honest, a lot of people are honest to they express regret about how they voted after the vote, primarily because they have been voting all their life and it didn't make a blind bit of difference. And then the first minute they actually vote, it has consequences like, that shit, I'm sorry. I didn't actually realise what I was doing. And the first thing you got is like a wall of Guardian subscribers calling them all sorts of names. <laughs> you know, and they're just like, and they're just, you know, it's they're trying to get back. They're trying, I'm going to stick it to these you know, like these people that are excluding, these people that I think are in control. I'm not saying that accounts for everything, but you know, in in working class communities, then you know, I say people have a very strong sense, whether it's distorted or not. You know, even in violent communities, people have a very strong sense of what's right, what's wrong, even in the odds, uh, eye for an eye, and 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 I think that that does sometimes translate to how people will will behave politically, um, because obviously. I find it hard to see how Brexit 
is in our interests in deprived communities. I mean, so many of the projects that I know that have brought a lot of, um, you know, aesthetically pleasing stuff to communities that were run down or needed regenerated or sources of employment, you know, they've all got funded by the EU plaques on them. I was done in Wales for work a couple of times and it just seemed like everything. <laughs> it seemed like everything in Wales. If you take the EU money out of Wales, it just, I can't imagine what it would look like. Now, I know that somebody else would come back and say, yeah, but that money was sent over there and then it was sent back, but there is some sort of utility about the, the EU, right down to the food packaging, for example. That's helped me navigate I understand a lot better now the difference between blueberries and Kit Kats, <laughs> which might seem obvious to a lot of people. Um, but I do, I, I do think that, that we need to closer examine the composition of the anger around Brexit. And although there's certainly an ethno-nationalist contingent to it, I mean, in America, you've got people who voted for Barack Obama twice and then they voted for Trump. Amazing. It's a little bit more complicated than simply just the, the, the ethno-analysis. Yes, I agree with you. Hey, we've been talking hour and a half. I think it's been an amazing conversation. I'm so grateful to you because I know you get people on who have got a big audience, and most of the people watching this don't have a fuck, don't have a clue who I am. So this opportunity for me is amazing, and it's been lovely to talk to you, to meet you. But more so than anything, like just for giving me the opportunity to speak to a bigger audience, I'm dead grateful for that. Thanks. I'm very grateful for you uh, coming on, mate. And to quote one of the great architects of the medium in which you work, if you don't know, now you know. <laughs> Thanks very much. Cheers, mate. That was brilliant.